please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. If you flip your Bible open to the middle, it'll come to Psalms usually. And then if you go a few books to the right, you'll find Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, what we're looking at today, we'll continue to study Isaiah with short breaks here and there until one of two things happen. Uh, One, until we finish all 66 chapters, or two, until God speaks to me, and God does speak to Presbyterians, but maybe not in the way you're thinking, um, until God speaks to me and says we need to hear something else. So Isaiah chapter 1, the scripture text is in the bulletin. As it was mentioned earlier, the bulletin's online these days. Um, There are drafts of the new reformatted uh, print bulletin. We don't have any plans to debut that, but those are circulating and floating around, and we're working on that as we've taken a pause, printing it every week to see if we can make it even better. But um, Isaiah chapter 1, without further ado, this is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. For the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, it is overthrown by foreigners." And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. 
But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Thus ends the word of the Lord. Grass withers, flower fades, word of the Lord stands forever. Those words come from Isaiah. Let's ask now the Lord's blessings as we consider this word together this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, if we failed to read ahead of Isaiah 1 this morning, we may have felt like we've just been hit right between the eyes. Father, help us to hear your word. Help us to hear it. Take heed to it. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. Give us hearts that are ready to respond to it. And Father, give us the gospel that we might know that in spite of these words, even if they're true of us, as they were true of some people nearly 3,000 years ago, that you can make us white as snow. Father, be with us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. He uses a shotgun, not a carefully written report. That's how Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, introduces his book to you and me. Not with dates and outlines, not with maps. There's an outline in your bulletin, so those aren't bad. But not with an index that shows you all of the passages that foreshadow the ministry of Jesus some seven, eight hundred years later. None of those things. Common in commentaries and introductory sermons like this one. None of those things are bad. But none of those, not exactly, are what Isaiah uses to introduce us to him. Instead, Isaiah uses a double-barrel shotgun blast of prophecy, landing us smack dab in the middle of Israel's sin and rebellion. It's an undated prophecy, like most of Isaiah 1 through 5. As if Isaiah is saying, right now, dates don't matter. I want you to be overwhelmed by the sights and sounds of Sin City. Jerusalem in this case, not Las Vegas. Then when I get to chapter 6 and the rest, then you will understand why God called me to be a prophet and what I was trying to do. Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel, the evangelical prophet, evangelical in the sense of Good news or gospel, that's the meaning of the word, first and foremost. And there is good news in Isaiah. 
Even in this chapter, you see one of the most well-known gospel passages. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. But we need to realize the mess and chaos that are swirling around that verse. Because if we do, we'll appreciate those words even more. Isaiah 1's a shotgun blast of prophecy, a sensory overload delivered to God's people who were under siege, living in fear, in uncertainty. And God's word to them is not, was not devoid of comfort. But the word is, was also, repent, wash, seek the Lord, wash yourself, or better yet, seek the only one who can wash you. The only one who can make you white as snow. Is Isaiah going to be a feel-good sermon series? You better believe it. But it's not Pollyanna. It is gritty and it is real. It is not the kind of good news that ignores reality and insists that this trash heap is really a garden of roses. No, it's the kind of good news that says you're living in a garbage pile. And that must stink. If you follow me, the Lord says, I'll transform all of this into paradise. If you follow me. That leads to our first, and by the way, our longest point this morning. Number one, God's rebellious children need a bath. That's what we see in these first 17 verses. God's rebellious children need a bath. Chapters 1 through 5 are Isaiah's introduction to his book. But Isaiah 1.1 serves as a good summary or starting point. Verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. It's a vision, divine revelation, not Isaiah's own interpretation. It's the vision of Isaiah. Scholars with Too much time on their hands have developed theories about different authors for different sections of Isaiah. But what if, as some scholars have dared to suggest, what if Isaiah, a learned man whose family had noble blood, regular invitations to the king's courts, what if Isaiah was smart enough, diversely talented enough to write more than one genre of literature? What if he was talented enough to write all of it himself? This is also a historical vision, one that is rooted in history. It involves forth-telling, telling forth the Word of God, telling it like it is, you might say. It also involves foretelling, predictive prophecy. I'm not going to spend much time on the four kings. We'll cover them in due time. They do help us date the book generally to the 8th century B.C. in Israel. Then the next thing we see, verses 2 through 9, we see Isaiah addressing the rebellion and ruin of God's people, of Israel in this case. Verses 2 and 3 says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Heaven and earth are called as witnesses. They were witnesses back in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, as well as parts of chapter 31 and 32. 
when Moses renewed the covenant with Israel, before they entered into the promised land where they are now living. And now, all these years later, Isaiah the covenant mediator, that's what the role of a prophet was, the covenant mediator or prosecutor. He's charging Israel with a crime. Breach of covenant or breach of contract. And he says to the original covenant witnesses, essentially, you were there, you saw God promised to be good to Israel. He promised as well that if they rebelled, the negative consequences would follow. See, these are God's children whom He raised, whom He redeemed out of slavery in Israel. But they've forgotten all that. They don't know God. They don't know anything. They don't know how good they have it. They're a sinful nation, verse 4. Forsaken the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel, that's one of Isaiah's favorite names for God. Not only are they rebellious, as it says in verses 2 through 4, but they are sick, verse 5 says, from head to toe. Education alone will not solve their struggles. They are rotten from the inside. Their bodies are sick. And as verses 7 through 9 reveals, their city, their country is sick as well. Ruined, desolate, burned. Now, we could, in, we could guess what invasion this is, compare historical notes, other parts of Isaiah, but that's not the point. The point is for us to appreciate Israel's condition, how bleak it is. They're surrounded by foreigners. That is not a xenophobic comment, fear of foreigners. That is a theological comment. Foreign nations who it would have been assumed by all who read this back then. Foreign nations who do not worship the one true God of Israel. They have besieged Jerusalem, Mount Zion. God has allowed His holy city to be ravaged by ungodly people. That's how angry He is. So angry that God's prophet says this, verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Jerusalem compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that a sign of their sexual immorality? Possibly. Many false religions back then used sexual immorality as a part of their religious practice, and it's likely that Israel was dabbling in that, what their neighbors were doing. But but what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? It was destroyed with fire and brimstone. Literally, that's where we get the term. Isaiah is saying that Jerusalem would have been destroyed even more than they already are. Utterly destroyed if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors. Sodom gets mentioned again in verse 10, but the topic changes in these next five, six verses as God rebukes the ruined or soiled worship of His people. Hard words again, verses 10 and 11. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Other prophets talk, talk like this too. But still, it might not be what we expect. God is saying he doesn't like worship? He doesn't like sacrifices? Didn't God require sacrifices from his people back then? 
Yes, he did. But God is not condemning worship itself. He's condemning the abuse, the misuse of worship. People who think they can show up at worship and excuses all the sin they've committed throughout the week. One author says it this way, God hates this particular worship by these particular people. Okay, keep that in mind. He's going to tell us why a little bit more in verses 17, verse 23. But first, just let the force of it hit you. All of the required rites, sacrifices, burnt offerings, incense, feasts that took place on New Moon Day, on the Sabbath, other convocations, even their prayers, God has had enough, doesn't delight in these. His soul hates them. It's like they are just noisy distractions that dirty up the carpet. Why? Again, not because God changed His mind about His requirement for worship, a requirement that our souls need, I might add. It's because God's people of the 8th century B.C., they had what one calls religious commitment devoid of ethical resolve. They went to temple, they gave their sacrifice, or to translate to modern terms, they went to church, they sang, they prayed, they listened to the sermon about Jesus dying for their sins, they took notes, which is how Presbyterians say amen, Can I get an amen? Um, No, I can't because we're Presbyterians. Thanks. And then, and then, they went home and they lived no differently than the world around them. Their hands were full of blood, verse 15 says. So God stopped listening to their prayers. He answered them with silence to get their attention. And when that didn't work, God sent Isaiah, who said, verse 16 and 17, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Wash yourselves because you need a bath to wash away the guilt, the blood on your hands. Seek justice. Bring justice to the fatherless and the widow. The example of powerless people with no advocates in the Old Testament. Until further study proves otherwise, I will assume that seeking justice, especially when it refers to the powerless, the orphan and the widow... It refers to making processes fair and equal for all. Refusing bribes. This is not a high bar to clear. Refusing bribes which pervert justice, which allow the rich and powerful to stay in power. Justice in the Bible usually refers to fair and equal process for all. Not equal outcomes. Not leveling the financial playing field or redistributing wealth. No, Isaiah is accusing Israel of rampant injustice. Loving bribes, like it says in verse 23. Other obvious sins, other examples in other parts of the Bible would include things like stiffing their day laborers of their rightful wages because they could, because no one could stop them. What are the powerless people with no money going to do? Are they going to sue? They can't afford a lawyer. They can't afford a bribe. Can't do anything. They were powerless. Justice is a big topic these days. And yes, there were 
bad definitions of justice, social justice floating out there. I'm aware. I'm not going to try to cover them all in one sermon. However, I did read a really good book recently, Thaddeus Williams, the subtitle, 12 Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. One of our elders recommended it to me. But at the same time, 30 years ago, Derek Thomas wrote this. Evangelicals have been quite right to mistrust a Christian message which does not, first of all, seek to make sinners right with God. But are they right, he asks, to forget about the social implications altogether? The prophets would say, no, let justice roll down like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's Amos 5.24. The world, he says, can never be changed unless the gospel is preached, but that does not mean Christians are to be indifferent to social matters. Christians should be concerned about the oppressed and the downtrodden. He goes on to give an example of William Wilberforce, others whose gospel preaching years ago led to social reform, the ethical implications of the gospel lived out in public life through years of hard work. And we are called to that same duty. That means, among other things, keep donating to Mercy's Gate, to Springs Rescue Mission, who does much more than just give people a bed for the night. It means we need to keep thinking about books like When Helping Hurts, as our deacons have done. We had an adult Sunday school class about it a few years ago, too. We need to keep supporting Life Network so that the underprivileged can have free ultrasounds. Parenting classes, we might not have all known about that. Parenting classes for men and women People who are unprepared for the situations that they've thrust themselves into. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. Good for you if you are. And also realize what might happen if we stop doing things like that. One day you could wake up to a prophet who says, Your city is ruined. Your soul is sick. Uh, God hates the so-called worship you bring. Because you stopped living as God's people, you stopped being the shining city on a hill who loves the orphan and the widow. You forgot how I helped you when you were helpless, dwelling in a house of slavery, dead in sins and transgressions. You've forgotten my mercy to you, and now you've forgotten to be merciful, let alone just, to the ones who need mercy. Your vertical sins have led to horizontal sins. That was God's word to his 8th century people. It was an indictment, an accusation, soon to be followed by a sentence, by a punishment, some of which had already come to pass. Let this word be a warning to us before God has to repeat it as an indictment. Because it's not too late. Harsh words, but it's not too late for God's people. Even for them who originally heard this, it wasn't too late. After a long look at how God's rebellious children need a bath, next we see this. Secondly, God's rebellious children have an opportunity. God's rebellious children have an opportunity. Verses 18 to 20. Isaiah, the covenant prosecutor, he's, he's got a damning case against God's people, against Israel. What comes next is a surprise. Now, what would you expect after this? Maybe you expect a severe sentence to be handed down. Maybe you expect God to start judging the nations around Israel who are more wicked than she is. After all, God hates their sins too, doesn't He? 
Yes, God will do that soon. God will judge the world. God will judge the wicked nations surrounding God's people. But that's, it's not what He does right now. Even though verses 28 to 31, it assumes that the other nations are more wicked. Verses 28 to 31, God says, Those who desire the oaks and the gardens, these telltale signs of pagan worship, the worship of foreign gods that other nations were doing, they worshipped the created earth and not the creator. He says they will be judged. The nations around them were doing all these things. He says they're going to be judged. God sees the evil raging around God's people. And the judge of all the earth will do right. But as I believe 1 Samuel says, judgment must begin with the household of God. So let's get back to my fire and brimstone sermon, right? Actually, no. God has another plan. Verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Even if your hands are full of blood, God has good news. Even if you're guilty of the same sins as 8th century B.C. Israel, there is hope. Now, of course, we're not exactly like Israel in the 8th century B.C. First of all, God's people back then were part of one nation, primarily of one ethnicity. That's one difference. Also, our, our cities aren't all burning. Then again, we lived through a year with protests, some, people, some peaceful, some not. Then again, God's people of 2021 A.D. are living through a pandemic and a year of unprecedented, sorry, had to, unprecedented upheaval of many kinds. Does anybody remember Murder Hornets? Anyone? It's not a sci-fi movie. That is early 2020. That happened. Anyone remember Wildfires? Big ones, big ones in Australia, as well as California, as well as Colorado. We moved the services outdoors, and then wildfires, air quality concerns. Is it possible, in the midst of all the crazy, that God is trying to get our attention? Just maybe. Is it possible that God wants the chaos of the world to drive us to the cross? That He wants us to seek refuge for our sins before we can try to condemn every sin of the world around us. But on the other hand, maybe you're not like the people of Israel. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not spiritually sick from head to nose. Maybe you've sought refuge for your sickness. Maybe God doesn't hate your worship. Maybe you're not living a life of hypocrisy day and night. Maybe you haven't sought fulfillment in the gods of this world. Maybe you haven't trusted sexual immorality as the savior of your soul, the forbidden fruit that will make you like God, the pleasure that will dull the unhappiness of your life. Maybe you're not personally guilty of horrible Injustice. Maybe you're simply trying to die more and more unto sin and live more and more unto righteousness. Maybe you are trying to love God, love your neighbor, and do good in your community. Maybe you're not as guilty as Israel. But even if you are, there is hope. 
Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. You can be guilty as sin and still become as pure as the driven snow. And how will this happen? Verses 19 and 20. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, all the good stuff. The land flowing with milk and honey, all the luxuries you can imagine. But if you refuse and rebel, verse 20 says, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's people have a choice, an opportunity. If they are willing and obedient, they'll taste and see that God is good. If they refuse and rebel once again, they will taste death. Spiritual death leading to eternal death. Now, what's this not saying? This is not saying do good and you'll be saved. Do bad and you'll be doomed. It's not saying that. It's saying that God's people will show they are God's people if they repent, if they turn from sin and turn, return to their Savior. Verse 27 says, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. They'll be redeemed by righteousness. His righteousness. Repentance is the opportunity for God's people. You might have done a thousand things that God hates, but He's still calling. He's still ready to receive you if you come to Him. And if you reject Him again and again, if you never fall at His feet and ask Him to wash you, then there is no other hope of salvation. But there is a hope. There is an opportunity. <laughs> there is peace in the midst of the storm of this life, the storm of your life, for those who repent, turning from sin, turning to their gracious and loving Savior. That flows into the final thing we see today. After seeing that God's rebellious children have an opportunity, we also see thirdly and finally God's repentant children will see justice restored. Verses 21 to 31. We'll move quickly. Three subsections here. One, justice or paradise lost. Verses 21 to 23. Next, justice equals restoration for the weary. 24 to 27. And then last, justice equals vengeance upon the wicked. 28 to 31. Verses 21 to 23 are really a recap, a repeat of verses 1 through 17. It's a lament. The holy city of God's people, they're not holy. They're not righteous. Oh yes, the prophet uses the word whore to describe her. Why? One, because sexual immorality was probably one of their sins. Second, because the prophets often use marital unfaithfulness as a metaphor for spiritual unfaithfulness. He also calls them murderers. He talks about how they love bribes and stealing. And as a result, their silver has become dross. Verse 22. In other words, it's impure. It's ruined. But this is not the end for God's people. For God's holy city. Verses 24 to 25. Therefore, the Lord declares, The Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy.
and your counselors is at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. How must that have sounded to weary Israel, to those who were willing to listen? Because, you know, it's not like their situation was a complete surprise. Their cities were desolate. They were burning. They were surrounded by the enemy. And yes, it must have hurt to hear the deeper diagnosis. You've rebelled. You've hated your neighbor. You've been an unjust people. Your hearts are sick. But he also goes on to say, but if you seek me, the cavalry will come over the hill. All will be restored. Injustice will fade away. The judges will be restored. You'll be a city of faithfulness once again to the weary ones who couldn't believe what their world had become. God says, seek me. Turn from your sin. Even if your sin isn't as bad as your neighbor's, seek me and live. Seek me and watch as I restore your city. Notice one day he'll restore their city. He doesn't say when. As I restore your city and make it even better than before. If it seems like we're still waiting for that promise to come, it's a good instinct. And yet not everyone would see this good news. It's not automatic versus 28 through 31, rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. I'll stop there. The rest is similar. He will start with an image in verse 29, the oaks that you have desired. Again, this was probably part of the worship of false gods, maybe involved nature worship as well. He takes the image and says, you'll be an oak, but your leaf will wither. It's the opposite of Psalm 1. The blessed man who trusts in God, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that the godly man does, he prospers. Doesn't mean he never sins. Doesn't mean bad things never happen. But the course of his life is one of prospering because God is with him. But this oak, its leaf withers. The strong man who trusts in this oak, this false god, instead of the true god, it says he will become a spark, a spark in a tree, will light the tree on fire. He will be destroyed in spectacular fashion. This chapter that began with fireworks, it ends with more of the same. And the image seems to imply this. The fiery wreckage burning around God's rebellious people is ultimately the result of their own sin. Oh yes, other wicked people are doing wicked things. Foreign nations are burning the city of God to the ground in this instance. This is true. God sees that. He will talk about it later. Huge section of Isaiah, oracles against foreign nations. For now, God is calling to His people amidst the fire and the wreckage calling to his people, many of whom have rebelled, and he's saying, come now, let's reason together. Your sins are like scarlet. Your hands are full of blood, but, but I can change all that. I can make you white as snow. I can also change the chaos around you, but the only way you will see that is if you first come and let me clean you. 
I started by saying Isaiah is a shotgun blast, both barrels. But I didn't say where the shotgun was aimed. Is it aimed at us to destroy us? Or is it aimed off to the side, up in the air, just to get our attention so that we will turn our eyes toward the one who wants to help us in the sea of noises that want to destroy us? What is God trying to say to us through Isaiah, amongst other things? I think he wants to say this, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The world around us need this, needs the same thing we need. The world around us needs the same thing we need. It needs to know that there is a God who wants to call us out of the darkness and destruction of this world. But before we can tell others that, we need to make sure that we know the good news ourselves. We need to know the sound of God's voice. The one who's telling us, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, <clears throat> we have a hard word before us this morning. Father, I pray that you would let us hear it, and I pray that you would let us respond appropriately. Father, I pray that you would not bring upon those who have sensitive consciences more guilt than they should have. And Father, I pray that you would not let those with hardened consciences dismiss this and let it bounce off them. Father, I pray that you would take my words, whether they were good, whether they weren't, whether they had the right tone, whether they didn't, and I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would make good out of them, and that you would give each of us what we need to hear, what we need to take home, the appropriate amount of self-reflection, that, Father, we would all repent of our particular sins, particularly, as our confession of faith says, and that, Father, you would allow that repentance to lead us appropriately to the gospel, the gospel of grace for sinners such as us, the gospel of grace that transforms us, that changes what we love, that sends us out to walk as new creations of Christ, witnesses, those who testify to the good news and forgiveness we found in Christ, saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Let that be true for me. Let me believe it. Let us all believe it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.